Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Balkum, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Hey friends, listen, I'm really glad you're here today because throughout this sermon series, it's been occurring to me that at some point I needed to stop and take stock of when we become mediators. That is when the Holy Spirit gives us these special powers to be used for his glory. Traditionally, in the history of the church, this has been spoken of as our ordination to priesthood. What's up, mediocre You don't think that there are people really out there listening to you, do you? Well, if it isn't my old arch enemy, Sinister, what rock did you slither out from under? You didn't think that I was going to let you have all the fun, did you? I saw your message on hope. Rich. Hope is not a strategy, my friend. I'll tell you what, here's some hope for you. I hope that the church crumbles while all the little virus is going around and everybody's in their basement. Yeah, well, don't get your hopes up, Sinister. There are a lot of mediators out there, and believe it or not, they're learning how to be the church even when they can't get together as often as they like. (laughs) You really think that? You think that you can put on a stupid T-shirt? And you get some power from God? This? Uh, This is just a symbol of what the Holy Spirit is doing. Look, I became a mediator the day I was baptized. (laughs) You're cracking me up. Baptized. I tell you, baptized. Y'all wet. Okay? Splish, splash. I tell you what, the baptizing, the dunking each other in the water doesn't change anything. You really think that it changes anything? Look, sinister. I'm not going to let you trip me up. I'm not going to let you convince me this time to do something stupid that'll mess up my mediator walk with Christ. Stupid? You think this is stupid? I'm trying to get you to think smarter. Come on. I think it's cool that you have all these powers and everything. But when you walk around being so high and mighty and, and righteous, people start to think you're foolish. You don't want your neighbors to think you're weird, do you? Look, I want my neighbors to think I love them. In fact, I want them to know God loves them. I want my neighbors to know I love them because God loves them. (laughs) Oh, good luck with that, buddy. I tell you what, I'm going to be able to pick all of you mediators off one at a time easily because there's going to be a lot fewer around pretty soon. Sinister, you're wrong. In fact, what you're going to discover is when all this is over, when it's all said and done, there are going to be more mediators out there than ever. Look, look, go back to your (laughs) whacked out sick little games. (laughs) I'll tell you what, I'm going to cut you some slack, buddy. I'm going to go back to my little games and you can go back to your little message and talk to your people here. But when you think that things are going bad and it's getting dark and there's no hope, I tell you what. Who's going to be back? I'll be back. I'll be back. (laughs) Sinister. Man, it just shows up at the worst times and just aggravates me so much. You know, I bet 
I bet sinister gets on your nerves like that too. I bet when you're, when you're low, he shows up to tell you, you can't be a mediator. You can't make a difference in the world. And you know, sinister doesn't have to get us to, to do terrible things. This is the interesting thing. He doesn't have to get us to sin so much as just to stop believing that we can make a difference. All he has to do is get us to lose hope and to worry that everyone around us might think we're strange or weird or, or something of the sort and instead of the presence of hope, the presence of Christ in their midst. In fact, all Sinister really has to do is to stop us from making new mediators. That's, that's all he has to do. I want to think today, as I was trying to say at the beginning of the sermon about about how we do that, about the moment that we become mediators, the moment that it becomes real in our lives. Now, let me remind you what it means to be a mediator. I'm using that word to speak of our priesthood, the priesthood of all believers, the priesthood that Peter talks about in the Bible, the royal priesthood. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 12, he says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then verse 24, he himself bore our sins. That is, Jesus did the work that has rendered our salvation. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now notice, if you would please, this death to sin is the key ingredient to life with Christ. We have to tell Sinister to pack his bags once and for all. We have to be done with that part of our lives that causes us to doubt our power to make a difference, that undercuts those hidden powers the Holy Spirit gives us as mediators, as priests, that are truly within us. In fact, I love the way the New Living Translation renders 1 Peter 2, 5a. You are living stones, living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. So the words of Paul ring true in Ephesians chapter 3, 16 through 19. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, the question becomes for us, what is our ordination to priesthood? Now, you probably know ordination is something we do for pastors, and and candidly, the reason we do it is because it's required by law for a lot of things. If I am able to enter a hospital sometimes, it's because I'm ordained. If I'm able to enter a prison, it's because I'm ordained. But honestly, in our tradition, in our understanding of the New Testament, and we believe in the way the early church practiced, everyone is a priest. So the question becomes, why don't we have an ordination ceremony for everyone? And maybe that's a good idea. 
Maybe at some point we should just lay hands on every person in the church. When we're able to be proximate again, when lots of people are coming back here, that would be pretty difficult to do. But maybe that's the answer. Or maybe the answer is to regard the ordination of pastors as some ritual that's necessary under the law of our land, but the real ordination is something else. So the question is, what is the real ordination of priests? What is our origin story, if you will? And what I want to suggest to you is that clearly in the Bible, across church history, and in modern understanding, clearly baptism is the mediator origin story. Now, maybe you don't know what an origin story is. Maybe you're not like Robin Miner and you're not this huge Comic-Con, comic book, comic movie kind of a fan, and you're not familiar with the whole notion or concept of an origin story. So, an origin story tells us when a superhero becomes that superhero. When a superhero gets their superpowers or becomes aware of those superpowers, it it tells them how they became something that separates them from everyone else. So, So clearly, every superhero has another origin story. They were born at some point. They came into the world, and they they lived life for a period of time. And then in every superhero's life, there is this moment where they become aware or in some way are transformed. There becomes this moment where they embody this superhero. I'll I'll show you some of the popular ones, if I might. This is the original Batman comic book that uh, depicted Batman's origin story. Now, let me just say, of all these I'm about to present, if you have one of these in your basement or attic somewhere, you can pay for the new building by selling it at Comic-Con. You can do it because the original prints of these are incredibly valuable, nothing more so than the origin story of the superhero. It's their moment of appearance. Or how about this one? Spider-Man's made a big comeback, man. It's, it's impressive. He was kind of off the scene for a little while, and now he's back. And this is the print of Spider-Man's origin story. It, it tells how he became a crime fighter because of what happened to his uncle, who was like a father to him. You know the whole thing. So, and here's the most famous one of all. If you've got this comic book, I'm telling you, you are wealthier than you realize This is the origin story of Superman. Now, do you remember that origin story? You know, he comes from Krypton, from a planet, and, 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 and it's got a lot more gravity than our, our solar system does. And so when he, when he comes into our earth, he's, he's got these superpowers because he's, he's dwelling in a place that doesn't confine him like that planet did. And you know the whole story. That, that place was destroyed. His whole family's destroyed. He, he doesn't know this, though, for a long time. And then it's revealed to him. So his origin story is not about his gaining those superpowers so much as coming to understand that he has them and to understand how he's being called to use them. So what is your origin story? And again, I want to tell you your origin story as a mediator, if you have an origin story yet, and if you don't, I want to talk about that later, but if you have an origin story, then that origin story is baptism. Now, we need to be careful with baptism In our tradition, I've often said we've tended to throw out the mediator baby with the holy water. We've sometimes discounted the power of baptism when it is writ large on the pages of the New Testament and certainly in the history of the early church. So we've got to think carefully about what baptism means. 
Now, the problem is that we know full well that baptism is not necessary for salvation. That is, we can be saved from hell and we can be launched into heaven simply by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by asking him to come into our life, by claiming his death and resurrection as our own. We are saved by the work of Christ, not by anything that we do. There is no sacrament. There's nothing sacred we have to do to be saved. The problem is we've stopped the conversation there. Our conversation has been really binary, like throwing a switch. As in, it's off and you're not saved, you're damned, you're condemned, and it's on and you're saved, and that's all there is to it. Saved, not saved. Not saved, saved. But that's not the story of Scripture. And you and I know this because we've done so much work to understand clearly what whole life discipleship is all about, what it means for us to deny ourselves, to take up the cross of Christ, and to follow him. We've done a lot of work understanding what it means to become mediators, to become those who practice the priesthood of all believers. That's the hidden ingredient. But trust me on the importance of baptism. In fact, in the New Testament, I challenge you to show me otherwise. While the authors of the New Testament go out of their way to tell us that it is faith that saves us, and actually it is Christ that saves us and faith that identifies with that, while they go out of their way to say that, every time they talk about salvation, they talk about baptism. In fact, the two are used almost synonymously over and over and over again. So, for example, the words of the risen Lord in Mark chapter 16, 16, Jesus said, whoever believes, now catch this carefully, and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, you may look in your Bible and you may discover, depending on your translation, that this portion of Scripture or this section of Scripture is in italics. And in fact, I've already had one of our leaders say, but wait a second, that wasn't in some of the earliest manuscripts we have of the Gospel of Mark. And that's true. But we don't know why it's not in some of those manuscripts and is in others. It's a curiosity to us. We don't know whether someone decided to delete it or somebody decided to add it. What we know for sure is this, that the final copy of Mark that was passed among the churches had this section in it, and more importantly, that the patriarchs of the church who canonized the New Testament, this version of Mark is the one that they put in our Bible. It's always been there. It reflects at the very least the kerygma of the early church. That is the true belief of the early church about what it meant to practice the faith. So in the early church, baptism and the receipt of salvation were synonymous because the assumption quite simply was, if you are saved, you will be baptized. That was just the assumption. Every single believer in the New Testament, every single person who decided to follow Jesus was baptized by immersion, every single one. So it's easy to understand how important this was to the church. It replaced a a lot of different cleansing rituals of Judaism and wrapped them into one thing, one moment of sanctification that was a a public expression of, of private faith. That is, that faith was private no longer. Some people have likened baptism to marriage. I don't think it's a bad analogy. It's not complete, but it's not bad. And let's face it, a lot of people seem to believe that marriage is not important anymore. So it's not important for us to say publicly we're committed to each other forever. I can tell you this. 
Had we not been married in our first few years of marriage, Debbie and I would never have stayed together. We never would have reaped uh, the fruit of this 33-year relationship that has been the most amazing part of my life. We never would have seen our family, and and probably I wouldn't be sitting here right now. I, I really don't know what the course of history would have been. But for us, that commitment, that moment of sanctification, it was synonymous with our relationship. You can't remove the one from the other and have any one resemble the other. So what does baptism do? We say in the New Testament it is a sign and it is a seal, or it is a sign and it is a symbol. I would suggest to you it is a sign of the work that Christ has done for us in order that we might be saved. We can't do that for ourselves. It's a sign of our faith in him, but it is a symbol of something else, and the symbol I suggest to you is the symbol of our taking on mediator status, of becoming priests. That's the moment where publicly we affirm we are in the redemptive game that God is enacting in his world today. Well, Mark's not the only scripture, so even if you wanted to discount that one, you'd have to struggle with some of these. Like in Paul's writing to the Galatians, he says in chapter 3, verses 26 through 28, so in Christ you are all children of God through faith, for all of you were baptized into Christ. You see how synonymous those two things are. For all of you were baptized into Christ, and you've clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. So what we begin to see is that Paul understands this this as almost a, a, a mystical formula. In fact, he uses the words in Christ an awful lot, if you'll notice. We say in Christo in the Greek. It's like, it's like invoking a powerful set of language, and that has to do with being baptized into Christ. For Paul, as apparently for Jesus and the other apostles, the other writers of the New Testament, baptism and faith are synonymous. So, yes, you can be saved without baptism, but why would you be? It is this public taking on of the role of the priest. This is why I think we do have to look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Please take note that Jesus didn't say, go make saved people. He never did. He said, then came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Listen carefully. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus very clearly taught us as a church to make disciples. And the way he taught us to make disciples or mediators is to baptize. Look, I could go on and on, and we will look at a couple of more scriptures, but I challenge you to read the New Testament carefully. It is true that in the Reformation, we wanted to make sure that we no longer had sacraments. There's no evidence in the Bible for something you have to do to be saved. But did we go too far? Did we forget the power and significance of something like baptism or even the Lord's Supper. I think we did. The greatest tradition of the Reformation was sola scriptorum, only the Scripture. And when I look at the Scripture, I see again and again this reiteration of the power of baptism. 
You know, like some people believe today that maybe marriage is not that important, there are plenty of people who believe baptism isn't important. I'll never forget the experience here at Columbia of having one of our key leaders call me and say, I need to meet you about something. I've done something absolutely terrible. Now, listen, I've had lots of these phone calls, and you just go, ugh. You just, you just shudder. And so I'm thinking, what is this person going to tell me? What, what's going to be confessed? I said, well, you, just, you want to talk on the phone? No, I've got to come in. I've got to talk to you. It's fine. So we sat down together, and tears are streaming down his face. He's crying, and he says to me, i got to tell you the honest truth. When I joined Columbia, I checked the box and said I'd been baptized, but I never was. I'm like, dude, this is no big deal. We can fix this. It's no big deal. He goes, what? We can fix this. We have a baptism coming up in a few weeks. We'll just take care of that. And we did. You know, not one person has ever come out of the waters of baptism and said to me, I regret that I did that. Not one. But lots of people later in life or at a point where it becomes impossible or when they get older and it becomes difficult have told me they regretted they didn't. And that's because there is some kind of power. It's a mysterious, even a mystical power to baptism. There's something with this identification before the church of Jesus Christ, before people, with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, by the way, this is why there's no private baptism. I'll sometimes, and this happens pretty often, have someone come to me and say, listen, I'm willing to be baptized, but I'd like to do it privately. No, there is no private baptism. That is the public pronouncement of faith. It might make you a little nervous, though, less than you probably think. It is going to make you wet. But at the end of the day, I'm telling you, there is something powerful. The Scripture is clear. Church history is clear. There's something powerful about baptism. So the question is, what is it? For years, I struggled to understand this. How can the New Testament authors, how can the writers of the New Testament, the apostles, Jesus himself, seem to speak about faith and baptism synonymously, and yet I know it is not necessary for me to stay out of hell? So so how do I reconcile these two things? And finally, reading Scripture enough, I think I found the answer. And maybe you'll agree with me. Maybe you won't. But hear me out. So the first question we ask, and it usually is where we stop, is, is baptism essential to salvation? There are some people who say that it is. I say absolutely not. The Bible is clear that baptism is not necessary for salvation. But the important thing for us to do, perhaps, in the context of this sermon series, is to move on to the next question, the whole life discipleship question. And that question might be gotten to in a different way. Let's look at Romans chapter 10, verses 10 through 13. The Apostle Paul writes, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Jesus says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's awesome news, isn't it? That it's because of who Jesus is and not because of who we are that we receive salvation. But let's move on to that next question. Could baptism be essential to mediation? Is it possible it is your ordination to priesthood? 
Is it possible that baptism is essential somehow to your becoming a mediator? Is this the moment where you publicly put on this transformational role of Jesus, this redemptive work of God in the world? Is it possible that we failed to ask the important question? I think yes. Baptism is essential to mediation. Listen to Peter, again, the same one who talks about priesthood. The apostle Peter writes, the waters of baptism do that for you, not by washing away dirt from your skin, but by presenting you through Jesus' resurrection before God with a clear conscience. Do you see what they do? Jesus has the last word on everything and everyone, from angels to armies. He's standing right alongside God. And what he says goes. So what we see here is that baptism represents, is a sign of the reality that we need no human mediator. When we are baptized, we are taking Christ. We are in a cruciform fashion, death and resurrection. We are taking on the power of Christ. We are saying publicly, speaking with our mouths, with our hearts, as Peter says, I am going to trust him completely for all eternity. And we are claiming the gift of salvation as our own. So you are a mediator because God's love and power are immediate to you. And that's the first side of the coin of the priesthood of all believers. It's the first side of the coin of the mediator. That is, you are accountable before God. You need no human mediator. Christ alone saves. You don't need anything else. You will be received at the right hand of God with Jesus when you leave this world. You have salvation. You have immediate access to the throne of grace. You can go straight to God and pray to him. Call on him whenever you want to, and he gives power through the Holy Spirit to you directly. That's the first half. But we've been dealing with the second half, the other side of the coin, and that is that because you have immediate access to the throne of grace, you become a mediator of God's presence, a mediator of Christ's love, a mediator of the Holy Spirit's power in the world. So you can literally represent God on earth. You've been given that special power, and you can represent others before the Heavenly Father. So we've loved Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. To us, God has made known uh, to the, among the Gentiles, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We are mediators of Christ's presence in the world, and I would suggest to you this makes the whole thing make sense to me. Baptism is the mediator origin story. This is the moment that you take on your superhero status. So again, the Apostle Paul writes so beautifully, powerfully, and famously in chapter 6, verses 3 through 8. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Sinister, get out of here. That, would, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe 
that we will also live with him. Now, note the importance that Paul places on baptism. It is synonymous in his language with this death and resurrection with Christ. Something is happening here, though Paul is the one more than anyone else who says that salvation comes only by faith in Christ and that Jesus has done all the work so that we should not be proud. He's the one more than any other who says there is no sacrament, and yet this baptism has some sort of unique power And what is it? I think he is saying it is your ordination to priesthood. It is the moment that you become a mediator. It's the moment you publicly say, sinister has no power in my life. And listen, sinister can't get you to do anything you didn't want to do already. He can't get you to do anything you didn't desire already. He can't get you to do anything you don't give him assent for, that you don't say, yes, I'm willing Now, let's think about the power of this. All of the early church formulas of baptism, the things that were spoken by both the candidate, the person being baptized, and whoever was baptizing them, all included a renunciation of Satan. And we don't do that anymore. And and sometimes I wonder if it might be a good idea if we return to some of those early creeds of the church. Because what we're saying publicly What we're saying publicly when we marry someone is I will be faithful to them for the rest of my life. And what we are saying in baptism is I will be faithful to the call of Christ for the rest of my life and all eternity. What we're saying is I take it on. I claim it as my own. I am a mediator. And the world needs to know that the Holy Spirit is unleashing me on despair. I am the hope of Christ incarnate. Christ is in me, and he is the hope of glory. Paul then writes in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 27, So in Christ, in Christ you are all children of God through faith. But then he says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Huh. Clothed yourself with Christ. You know, maybe Sinister's right. Maybe this T-shirt's a little silly. I don't know. My wife's been teasing me about how I seem to think I have these superpowers when I put it on. I think I've got to have a little more. If I'm going to put on Christ, I think I've got to go all the way. What do you guys think? You like it? So here's the thing. In baptism, we cape up. In baptism, we say we have an origin story. And that origin story is not just the family we come from or where we were raised or, or anything of the sort or where we went to school. That origin story is the, is the moment that we identified that Christ is empowering us to be his mediators. That origin story is not just claiming salvation. It's taking a redemptive role in the work of God in the world. It is whole life discipleship. So if you haven't been baptized yet, if you haven't been put on, put on Christ yet, it is time, my friends, for you to put on the cape. It's time for you to cape up, suit up, and take on your role as a mediator. Now, we've wondered, how can we handle baptism in this COVID era? Because clearly, you don't want to come back into a packed room. This room would have been packed just a few months ago, and now you can get tickets to come, but 
You're still doing the virtual thing, and that's all right for now. It'll take courage for all of us to come back at some point, but right now it's okay. And I'll be honest with you, it's hard for these people who come to adjust the fact that I'm looking at you and not at them. They look at the screen instead of me. It's, it's hard for them not to be able to sing. I can't help it. I move my lips. I, I can't help that. It's a little different, but at the end of the day, we're going to have to continue to do the things the church does in this era for a while, and so I want to tell you that in September, we're going to have a baptism on our parking lot, and the reason we're going to do it is because lots of people have been contacting us and me and saying, I want to be baptized. I want to come into the life of the church. When can I do it? And what we've discovered through our research is the water takes care of the virus. So chlorinated water takes care of all that. The water's not the problem. It's just direct contact with other people. So we're going to set up out in our parking lot. We're going to have an outdoor baptism service, and we're going to have, I think, quite a few people who've been queued up and ready to take on mediator status, to put on Christ and put on the cape. They're ready to roll. I want you to be thinking right now, is it time? Is it time for you? to be baptized? Do you understand its importance in the history of the church? Remember what Jesus says to us really carefully? He says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, mediators of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Do you know in the history of the church, baptism has been so important and it's right from the beginning. So really in our Reformed tradition, what we say is the Holy Spirit got it right the first time. Jesus got it right the first time. The way the church, the early church was, is the way we want to be, albeit in our time and in our place. And so if we look at Pentecost, if we look at the day that the Holy Spirit came, if we look at the day that the church was first empowered, that the church first got its mediator powers, that the, the apostles were empowered by the Holy Spirit. What happened that day? And what we tend to think happened was the Holy Spirit came and a bunch of people joined the church. It's true. Thousands came into a church that had a handful before that day, but all of them were baptized on that day, and all of them heard the preaching of Simon Peter. Simon Peter stood empowered by the Holy Spirit. People heard in their own language, and what did he preach? Well, he preached about this one Jesus, about his death and his resurrection, and then he said this. When the people heard all that Peter had preached, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, listen carefully, what? Repent and be baptized. Take on the cape, come into the church, be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you then will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, mediator power. This promise is for you and your children. It has implications for generations and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call to himself, all the mediators he wants to make. And with many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accept his, his message were what? Wait a second. Were baptized. Every last one of them. And about 3,000 men and probably their wives and their children were baptized and were added to the number of the church of Jesus Christ, the hall of superheroes 
on that day. Baptism is the mediator origin story. Doesn't this clear everything up? It's not necessary for salvation. But salvation's not the whole story. God doesn't save us so that we won't go to hell. What, you say? No. God saves us to draw us back to himself. He created us for that relationship, and he saves us to use us in his redemption of creation, in his redemption of the world. He saves us to make us mediators. Please understand My friends, there is only one model of Christian, and that model of Christian is a whole life disciple. That person is a mediator, and for them, they would never, ever, ever consider not being baptized and entering the body of Christ that is the church, that is the presence of Christ until he comes again. Across my years of ministry, I've been blessed by many baptisms. Of course, I was blessed by my own, but I've been frankly, more blessed by the baptisms of others. Every single time we baptize, there's some story in that water. There's some story in that water that just is so alive and so rich and so powerful. I'll never forget baptizing my own daughters. My youngest one, Marley uh, Kelly, I baptized in a river, and she swam off after I baptized her. I'll never forget the moment. Curtis, you were there. Remember that day? One of the baptisms I most remember was in the same church, and There was a man in that church. He was a gigantic man, a giant of a man, so tall, so so heavy. He was just an enormous man. He was in a terrible accident, and he was paralyzed. He became a quadriplegic. And he, he knew he might not have that much longer to live. He didn't know how long, but certainly his life was going to be shortened. The accident had left a lot of damage. And when I sat in his home at his bedside and talked to him and and said to him, man, you know what? Life's Life's been great, and God's given you a lot. I I think to be grateful in this moment is tough. And he goes, I only have one real regret. Now, if a man's going to tell you in this thing I have one real regret, what is he going to say? You know, I I regret I never married this woman I loved, or I regret that I never made a million dollars or whatever. Tears streaming down his face, he says, I regret that I was never baptized. I, I always thought that I had plenty of time. I always felt like I could walk into those waters any time, and I just kept holding off and holding off and holding off. I said to him, brother, listen, you do understand, don't you, that baptism is not necessary for salvation? He said, I know that. I know that. I said, not only that, but God honors the symbolism of baptism, so let's just bring a couple of people in here with us and get a bucket of water, and we'll baptize you right here. He said, no, no, that won't do. I want to go down into those waters. All right, man, let's make it happen. We got four huge guys to help us. We strapped that man to a board, and we took him down into the waters of baptism and lowered him up to his neck. I'll admit that his head wasn't baptized. That was was impossible. And raised him up again. And with all of his might, he shouted, all that he could muster, he shouted from that board, the Lord, the Lord has done it for me. The Lord has done it for me. Baptism was so important to him, but he didn't know it. And for some of you, baptism and inclusion in the church, belonging to the body of mediators, it's so much more biblical, so much more important than you realize 
So I'm just going to ask you to think about this. If you have not had the opportunity to be baptized, to put on Christ, and to take on your mediator status in the world, wouldn't you let me know that the time is now? You're ready. You understand how important it is scripturally in the history of the church, how important it is to you and to your family. In fact, why don't you just drop me an email, jbalkum at columbiabaptist.org, and tell me you want to be one of those who goes into the waters of baptism when next month we baptize in our new parking lot. Why don't you just let me know? And you know what, folks? It's time for me to say something I haven't said for a while, but it may be time for many of you to become a part of Columbia. Even in this virtual era, you know this is your church home. And and frankly, I, I don't even know what to do with this moment. We're having people from all over the country write and say, I want to be a part of your church. How can I do it? I want to join Columbia. If you want to join Columbia, if you want to be a part of the fellowship of this church, if you've already been baptized, just let us know. If you need to be baptized, then come in that way. Just email me, would you? jbalkum at columbiabaptist.org. But remember this, my friends. You have an origin story. Baptism is the mediator origin story. It's the moment we discover these hidden powers to be the presence and the love of Christ in the world. You be a mediator. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this gift of baptism. And in fact, for the gift of the church of Jesus Christ, we all too easily take for granted. But after these months, we will never take it for granted again. And until we can gather proximately again, until we can be together, guard your church and protect it from sinister, from the evil one, who would pick off mediators with despair, one after another after another, when mediators have never been more important than they are right now, because mediators are the church in their neighborhood. Mediators are the church in their workplaces. Mediators are the church in their homes. They are the church on soccer fields. They are the church wherever they go. The church is not a building. The church is mediators, alive and active and working in the world. And Father, I pray that anyone who asked Jesus Christ to come into their lives this day would receive him with the gift of the Holy Spirit and prepare their hearts, their minds, and their spirits for the beauty, the power, and the mystery of baptism and inclusion in the church. Holy Spirit, empower your mediators. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Columbia, I love you. I am praying for you. I miss you and can't wait to see you again. You go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Go be baptized mediators. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC or Northern Virginia area, We would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.